Guard my heart from being a consumer today. Guard me from being lazy and idle in this church. Because I understand that this is the body of Christ. He is our head. It is a living picture. And there is ministry to do today. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part five of A Prayer to Live By, a study in Ephesians from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is verses 15 through 23 in chapter one of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. The Apostle Paul founded this church during his missionary journeys and then poured his heart out in living among and serving these believers for three years. These verses are the closing of the Apostle Paul's magnificent prayer for these new Christians he dearly loved. Ephesus had been seen as a model church. Apparently, no heresy or other problems had crept in, like those that occurred in some early churches, such as the church in Corinth or in Galatia. But these believers had lots to overcome from their beginning. Ephesus was the center of the dark arts, the occult. Even the world-famous Temple of Diana was located there. Sound familiar? Something like the culture we live in? Is Christ higher in authority, highly exalted above evil, spiritual and economic forces like those centered in Ephesus? Here's part five of A Prayer to Live By. So by way of review then, Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, I have argued, is something of a mirror image to his opening eulogy. Verses 3 through 14, Paul expounds the riches of God's grace to every believer in Christ. He shows these Christians in Ephesus that they have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that God in Christ has not withheld any spiritual blessing, but that we have it all. He unpacks the riches of those blessings over a number of verses, and then he enters into his opening prayer. There are other prayers in this letter, but this is the first, and the conundrum with which we're faced as we come to read it is, what on earth do you pray for someone who has everything? And I've argued as we've studied this prayer that Paul is essentially praying that they would simply know the blessing that is theirs. What do you pray for somebody that has everything? You pray that they would know it. Paul opens his prayer by saying, I want you to know God. That is the entry point into their grasping of who they are in Christ. They are spiritually rich. But in order to understand that, they must first come to a deeper, more grounded, more fully robust knowledge of God himself. As they grow in their knowledge of God, they would then grow in their knowledge of his gospel. Paul's prayer is a mirror image of the eulogy. He wants these believers to grasp more fully the gift and the giver. And this prayer, as you'll remember, 
I mentioned is a prayer for all Christians. It is a prayer to live by. This is not a prayer that is exclusive to the Ephesians. It doesn't relate only to them, but it is a prayer that is adequate and appropriate for every single Christian in all of church history. It is a prayer by which we should be living our lives. Just by way of application, I would encourage you to think through if and how our study of this prayer has evidenced any fruit in your lives already. Has it in any way informed your prayer life? Has it changed the way you think about praying for yourself, for your family, for those around you, for your brothers and sisters in this church? This is why we have scripture today. It is to teach us, to instruct us, to edify us, to encourage us. This is why we gather together on a Sunday night for a second time on the Lord's Day and we give time to his word in order that there would be changes in our lives, that more glory would be given to God by virtue of our time together. And this mini-series within our study of the book of Ephesians, this smaller series in Paul's prayer, should be bearing fruit in your life. Specifically, and most obviously, the fruit that we would hope to see in our lives from our time in Paul's prayer is that we would start to imitate this prayer. That we would start to imitate this prayer as a habit as a standard prayer by which we pray that you would be asking regularly that God would further increase your understanding of him, that God would further equip you with a knowledge of your salvation, of all of the salvation benefits that you have, past, present, and future. That is the logic of Paul's prayer. He walks through the gospel. And he says, I want you to know this. And God's desire for us surely would be exactly the same thing. That we would grow in our knowledge of God and grow in our knowledge of his gospel. So I want to ask you at the very beginning of our study this evening, has this prayer taken root in your own prayer life? Are there hints of this prayer, if not this very prayer, showing up in your meditations and in your petitions. Consider praying through Paul's prayer for you, for those around you, and for those with whom you're in membership at this church. Pray on a Monday morning. Pray for each other. We spend Sundays together and then we go about our thing, whatever that is in the week. Rise on a Monday morning and pray for your brothers and sisters at Bethany Bible Church. Lord, would you this morning enable my brothers and sisters to better grasp your glory, to further apprehend your character? And as you give them by your grace that knowledge, would you then allow them to see the glory of the gospel? This day, would you guide them by your spirit this day to further understand the grace that has been given to us through the saving work of Jesus Christ? These are important prayers, far more important than prayers that you might pray concerning the particular circumstances of your day. 
I truly believe that. Far more important than asking the Lord that today might go your way is the prayer for others that they would fully apprehend God and his gospel. That is a prayer of eternal significance. And so consider, as we round off our study this evening in Paul's prayer, how this has shaped and informed your own prayer life. Now, after Paul has told the Ephesians what he prays for them, at the very, very end, he adds almost something equivalent to an appendix, almost something akin to a footnote. Just one last comment that doesn't actually form so much part of the petition, but an explanation. Verse 23, he explains what exactly is the church. Backing up a little bit, he has said that Christ has been put in an authoritative position over all things and been given as head to the church comma, explanatory comment, by the way, the church is his body. It's his fullness, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And as I've pondered this verse, I have found that there is so much to say that we could easily spend the next few weeks considering this closing remark in Paul's prayer. Just incredible theology in this closing comment in Paul's prayer. I struggled even to to understand how we might get into it. How might our study begin as we think through what is Paul saying here? One way in which you can often start to prize open the theology that is inherent to a text is to start asking questions of the text. Ask some good questions of the text and see what fruit it starts to yield. And the questions that I think we're to ask of this text is simply, what is the church? That is what Paul is explaining in this last verse. He adds this comment as a, as an explanatory comment concerning the church. And so one way in which we might go about our study this evening is simply to ask, what is the church? It's to that question that this verse provides an answer. And I've divided the text, short as it is, I've divided it into three points. Paul explains to us three things about the church. It is the body of Christ. It is the fullness of Christ. And it is the treasure of Christ. There are headings this evening What exactly is the church? It is the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ, and the treasure of Christ. Beginning first then with the body, Paul says Christ sits as head over all things. He's been given as head to the church. And then he says the first thing, which is his body. The church is Christ's body. Paul will use, he will employ a handful of metaphors throughout the letter to the Ephesians, he will employ a handful of metaphors to describe the church. You're probably familiar already with a number of them, not least that the church is the bride of Christ. Here, the metaphor that he employs is the body. 
The church is the body. That immediately implies certain theological truths. This metaphor would not have been lost on the Ephesians. It was a common metaphor in the ancient world. Paul applies it to the church, but the Ephesians would have been familiar with the body metaphor in many other areas of life. It was often employed in the ancient world to segregate, to mark off a group of people by virtue of their economic status or their political status. So you can search ancient literature and you can see the body metaphor used with reference to a group of people many times. And it's usually employed so as to set apart a group of people based upon a level of wealth that they would have. Or political clout. Paul wonderfully picks up that known metaphor and he employs it with reference to the church. So with a little bit of cultural background, you start to see the riches of the church, the theology of the church. Paul is is upending this metaphor. Compared to how it's normally used, Paul is changing its application. Everybody that reads this letter understands the church is not delineated based on economic status. The Ephesian Christians understand intuitively this body, this church, is not defined by their political clout. That's not who the church is. Paul will go on to say within Ephesians and within his other epistles, the church is defined by one single truth that its members are in Christ. And that's it. In fact, he'll draw attention to the fact that economic status has nothing to do with membership. That your political status has no bearing on your acceptance into this body. Paul will labor the fact that the local church is made up of Greeks and Jews and men and women and old and young and slaves and slave owners. It is all encompassing the one defining characteristic of the membership to the church is your in Christness. That's it. So he, he flips this known metaphor on its head and says, you can forget all notions of exclusivity based upon your perceived status in society. But rather, it is Christ that brings us together. And so what that does is it further instructs us about how to go about our membership. What does it mean to belong to a local church? It means that you strive for unity. If the thing that defines your membership is the grace of God made manifest to you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no room within any local body to behave as if you're better than someone else. There is absolutely no room within a biblical theology of the church To consider yourself superior to another church member. We are all of us sinners saved by the grace of God. Not one of us earned our salvation. Not one of us brought anything to the table that was of any worth before a holy God. 
And by his grace and his grace alone, he gave us eyes of faith. And now here we are, privileged brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are equals. So just as an immediate point of application, let me encourage you to examine your heart and consider the means, the manner, the way in which you go about your membership. If you live out your membership in this local church in such a way that it truly does reflect the metaphor that we are the body of Christ. Now that metaphor, we can keep unpacking it and keep finding more theological truth. It also, by calling the church the body of Christ, it also infers a singularity in our focus. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. What should the church be about but the Lord Jesus Christ? What should the church be consumed with but the Lord Jesus Christ? Where should the church's attention be but the Lord Jesus Christ? It may not be that the Lord has you at this church forever. Who knows what the Lord's plans are for your life. He may move your way, perhaps a a work move. It might be that in years to come, you're somewhere else in the country or the world and you're looking for a church. Let me give you a piece of advice. Do not go to a church if it is not all about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you detect a church whose attention is elsewhere, don't go to that church. If you find a church that is all about Christ, that sings of Christ and preaches Christ and practices Christ and celebrates Christ, that's a place to make your home. And please, would you pray that that would be the testimony of this church week after week after week. A biblical ecclesiology instructs us that we are his body. He is our head. So there is to be in this place a singularity of focus. We are to be fixated on the person of Christ and not elsewhere. We do not take our eyes off Jesus. He is our head. And so all that we do must be governed towards a esteeming of him, an exaltation of him, a glorifying of him. And if it is not, then it is most likely not what we should be doing. We have probably lost our way if you detect that Jesus is not the center of what is happening at this church. It infers a singularity of focus. And notice that you have a part to play in this. This is not exclusively an exhortation to the leadership. It is that. I pray that we as elders would be fixated on Christ in our own lives, that we would faithfully lead the church in that direction. But there is an exhortation to you, a church member, to bring Christ into this. For you, a church member, to be all about Christ. Make a contribution here. Show up and bring Christ. Speak Christ to one another. Encourage people around the truth of Christ. Exhort your brothers and sisters on a Sunday around the glory of Christ. 
determined to be someone who points others towards Christ. That is what it means to be a good church member. Because we're his body, and that implies a singularity of focus, the metaphor also teaches us that the ministry here is ongoing. The metaphor that Paul picks, we are the body of Christ, he is our head, is a living metaphor. It has life implied to it. We are not an inanimate object. We're not dead. We're living. We are the body of Christ. There is blood coursing through the life of this congregation. There is ongoing work here, and the work, the ministry, the labor will continue until the day our head returns. It is always continuing. And so adjust your understanding of what the church is if you do not already think this to be a place where the ministry is never ending. You come here to serve. You come here to serve others. I would encourage you to think of Sundays as a joyful day, a day of worship, a day of rejoicing with one another, and a day of service. As you drive here in the morning, as you approach this church, pray, Lord, work in my heart right now that I would carry out my presence on this campus today in a servant-like manner. Father, guard my heart from being a consumer today. Guard me from being lazy and idle in this church because I understand that this is the body of Christ. He is our head. It is a living picture and there is ministry to do today. And whoever you are, in whatever capacity you serve on a Sunday, you have a part to play. Paul will speak about this more in this letter. You have a part to play however the Lord has wired you, however he has gifted you. He may have given you the particular gifts that are perhaps the most overlooked. It does not mean that your contribution is insignificant. It is eternally significant. Whatever part you play, it is an eternally significant ministry because it is a ministry within the body of Christ. And so Paul leads by teaching us that the church is the body. It is Christ's body. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Yesterday, Pastor Paul closed with this prayer to our Lord, quote, that we would live out a life of obedience to your command. What kind of obedience? The apostle is writing a single letter here, and he doesn't have much time to say a lot. He wanted them to have a full comprehension of Christ's gospel with deep insight into the character of Christ and Father God. He would return to them to give his blessing in a brief interaction with the Ephesian elders, then he'd be on his way to Jerusalem, then to Rome, and would not see them again. He wanted them to be a praying church, a church focused on the exalted Christ, Son of God, and serving other believers in Christ's love. Today, God wants our obedience to his gospel and our full loyalty and participation in Christ's body. 
which is your local Bible teaching church. If you'd like to know more about the church that produces this program, visit TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you benefit from the solid Bible teaching of this program, would you consider making a financial gift? You'll become part of what God is doing to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. To make your gift of any amount, go to TimelessTruthToday.org and select Donate. Thank you for your consideration. Join us tomorrow for part six, the conclusion of our series, A Prayer to Live By. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.